the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Friday, it means we all get to go to church on Sunday. Here at Calvary Chapel, it's Communion Sunday, my favorite Sunday of the month. We get an opportunity to be invited to the Lord's table. Uh, What an honor and a privilege it is, wherever it is that you're going to church. Many of your churches have communion on the first Sunday of the month as well. Um, Just remember what an honor it is. That's a a dinner invitation that you don't want to miss out on. So that's Sunday. I'm going to be finishing Acts chapter 27 on Sunday. What that means is after Sunday, I only have two more studies in the book of uh, Acts uh, chapter 28, I'll, I'm going to have to take that in two studies. I was hoping to do it in one, but I can't. And then, of course, uh, I've been sharing this with uh, our church. Uh, the Lord, because witnessing and testimonies are so powerful and used in the book of Acts, uh, the Lord has been leading me to share my personal testimony. So we're actually going to take a Sunday. Uh, it will be the fourth Sunday in the month uh, here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, and I'm going to share my testimony. So um, that's what's coming up here. By the way, tonight, Pastor Ken is going to be teaching from the Gospel of John. That's at 7 o'clock, and you can watch that at calvarysa.com. Okay, let's get to questions that have been sent in while we uh, wait any phone calls that you have. Our first question comes from serving from our email inbox. Interesting. Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on becoming a member of of a church you are already attending. I'm attending a Lutheran church, and I believe in the rapture. I don't believe in infant baptism, and I'm a little uncomfortable with the way they spend so much time on Lutheran ways, and Lutheran is in quotes. I just want to be a member of Jesus' church. I love the people there, and they teach the Bible. We serve the Lord together joyfully. I've discussed my opinions with the pastor, and we agree to disagree. I even sat... Uh, through the baptism of a baby as my heart was breaking for the child and the parents. I've prayed about this over and over and feel led to continue serving the Lord there. Would you consider becoming a member of a church you didn't completely agree with? And what is the importance of being a member? 
I will continue to serve and pray until he leads me to move in a different direction. But I wanted to get a different perspective. Thank you so much. And may God continue to bless you and Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Thank you for your prayers and thank you for your blessing serving. A a couple of things here that's really important. And as I was reading this question earlier today, Amos 3.3 kept jumping up in my heart and in my head. Uh, Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Now, that's not the context of Amos 3.3. We understand that. That's about a, a covenant between the people and God. And God's saying, look, I'm going one way. You can't walk with me if you're going in a different direction. But the same principle is true in fellowship with other believers. Now, there's a lot of things that you said that really sort of send off um, red flags. First, you said um, uh, you want to be a member of Jesus' church, and then you said, I love the people there, and they teach the Bible. Well, it's good that you love the people there, but are they really teaching the Bible? You know, you talked about the Lutheran ways that you're uncomfortable with. I think what they're teaching is a Lutheran catechism. Now, there's a couple of things I know about Lutheran churches. Now, first of all, let me also say this. There are Lutheran churches that are completely apostate. There's two branches of the Lutheran church. There is one that is Orthodox. Those people are saved and they're going to heaven. Usually the issues split over homosexuality and gay marriage and and, and issues like that. Be certain that you are a part of that group that is orthodox in its doctrine and and uh it sounds like you are but we have to be careful and check it out um but but when they teach the bible they're teaching wrong doctrine you know that infant baptism is not attested to in scripture at all you know somebody's not saved because they get baptized as a baby when they have no choice in the matter So uh, I think that's really a a bad understanding. You believe, rightly so, in the rapture of the church. And they are probably going to be amillennialists. But but if they don't believe in the rapture of the church, well, then they're not really teaching the Bible. At least they're not doing it correctly. Um, These are important issues And for a pastor to say, well, we just agree to disagree, I think what we really need to do is be able to talk about and reason through the scriptures. Come, let us reason together, Isaiah said. Paul said that we can reason through the scriptures. And and we can come to a conclusion about what the Bible says. And what it sounds like is you found a church where you love the people, and God bless you for that. But you've found a church um, where you simply aren't going in the same direction. And whenever somebody tells me, and by the way, I get this a lot. I get this with Catholics who who say they're born again. Well, I just feel led by the Lord to stay there. I'm not so sure it's the Lord that's leading you to do that. Would Jesus, would the Spirit of God lead you to remain in a church where you can't agree With doctrine, doctrine matters. Paul told Timothy at the end of his life, he said, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. In other words, doctrine matters. And the idea here that you say you feel led to stay in the church, to remain there. Now, if you're going to be there, you need to serve, and I commend you for that. But I just, I don't believe that the Spirit of God would lead somebody to remain in a church that is teaching false doctrine. That's really important. I think sometimes it's just we're comfortable there. We love the people there. We don't want to rock the boat. Now, the one thing that we can't do is stay there and cause division. But my suggestion would be for you to find a church where the doctrine is correct and then serve and love the people there. I think that's how important it is. Now, let me talk about the issue of membership. When you sign a membership agreement in the Lutheran Church, you're going to go to a catechism class. And you're going to sign a statement that says you agree with those things. You can't do that. You can't do that and be honest. So um, being a member, now denominational churches in particular, 
place a big emphasis on being a member. They want you to sign up. They want you to commit to giving 10% of your income. Um, but, but, but the idea that you could agree with their doctrine, which membership requires in Lutheran Church, you'd have to be dishonest in order to sign that kind of a statement. So I don't think the modern concept of membership in a church where you sign a covenant, where you agree to give 10%. None of that is, is what the Bible means when it talks about belonging to the church. You very eloquently said you want to be a member of Jesus' church. Now, I'm certain that a lot of those people there are saved. But one of the things that you're not going to be taught there is that you must be born again. If I was sitting in Lutheran church on Sunday, all I could do would be looking around and wondering, well, is he born again? Is she born again? That's how important it is. And so I, again, I'm not telling you what God says to do here, but it would be very difficult for me to say the Spirit of God is leading me to stay in this church. Be honest and wonder if perhaps you've grown comfortable there and because you're serving there and because you love the Lord, it's okay. Typically what's going to happen, especially if you become a member and stay there long term, Typically, we're going to see you be the one who ends up compromising on the things that you know are true. Now, let me all say this, and I also say this, and I don't mean this disrespectfully. But when you go to a Lutheran church and you're going to sit through a very short sermon, it's almost always going to be in the Gospels. It's not going to have much emphasis on this is what you do with this passage of Scripture. It's just going to be, uh, a, I, I call them sermonettes, a sermonette that, that ends quickly. The, the Lutheran service typically ends very, very quickly. You're going to have a Lutheran understanding of communion, which is also biblically incorrect. And you're going to have to make peace with all of those things. This does not sound like a good marriage spiritually speaking to me. Thank you, Serving, for your heart for the Lord, and thank you for asking the question. I hope you still like me after the answer. Let's go to Reuben on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. Uh, i just wondering if I could ask for some prayer today, if okay. it's okay with you. Sure. Um, I am currently in the hospital in Seguin at GRMC. Um, have several things wrong. Um, just uh, asking uh, if everybody could just lift me up uh, so that the Lord can uh, just, His will be done in my life. And that um, the surgery that they're thinking about doing on my back, uh, I'm praying I can move it to San Antonio instead of here. But I'm not too sure. Um, my sugars have been completely out of range. There were 800 the day that I was uh, admitted. My blood pressure was almost 395 over 200. Oh my and goodness. my pulse rate, yeah, and my pulse rate, pulse rate at sitting was 148. So there was a lot of things wrong, and so uh, I don't. I've been here for three days and. I still don't feel up to, uh, the way I normally do, and um, just asking for prayer, you okay. know, uh, um, if people could just lift me up and 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 just uh, let the Lord comfort me while I'm in here, and let the Lord guide me as to what to do if they want to do the back surgery, because if they do, I really want to have it done in Northeast Baptist okay. in uh, San Antonio. Well, Reuben, I will be praying for you. I'm sure many, many of our listeners will as well. You've been an object of a lot of prayer through this program. So if you don't mind, I'll pray very quickly for you now as well. Father, we lift our friend Reuben to you and in the middle of his trials, and he's had so many of them, physical trials, Lord, as well as spiritual trials. I pray two things. I pray that his heart is right with you. I pray that he can approach the throne of grace with confidence because he trusts in you, Jesus, to wash away his sins, and because he's walking with you, a life intended to bring you glory. I also ask you, Lord, to touch him, to heal him, to get his blood pressure and his sugar counts under control. And Lord, give him 
discernment about what to do with regard to the upcoming surgery. You know, Jesus, it'd be so much easier if you just heal him and make it all go away, but we know that's not what you're going to do. So here's what we ask, Lord, that Reuben, as he lays in the hospital bed, would be able to rest in your hands. Speak to his heart, Lord, and bring him to that place where his light can shine even from a hospital bed in Seguin. Thank you, Lord. We we thank you in advance for the things that we've asked. Amen. Reuben, we are praying. Thank you, dear friend. Here is a question that comes in. This one is from Sarah from our email inbox. Uh, Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I have a question about grace. Uh, As Christians, we are taught and encouraged to be gracious with one another. I've been gracious with an individual, but they're not learning their lesson. Uh, How do I properly balance grace in dealing with their individuals? Uh, Or with individuals, rather. I don't want to abuse giving grace either by this. I mean, to use it as an excuse not to deal with the problem or not holding her responsible for her actions. I just want to do things the way Jesus wants me to do them. Uh, Is there any advice you can give me? I can, uh, Sarah. Let me say first and foremost that um, grace, uh, God dealing with you in grace is all and only about you. God is not going to give you grace so that somebody else can learn their lesson. And it seems like by by extending grace to this person, um, you're expecting that there's going to be a change in her behavior. The fact that she refuses to change doesn't eliminate the requirement for you to continue to be gracious with her. I know God doesn't move as fast as we want him to move. And it's also true, Sarah, that a lot of times people never change. God simply says to you to be willing to forgive, be gracious and be kind, don't repay evil with evil, uh, and just continue to pray. And every time you get a little bit irritated because this person isn't responding or not learning their lesson, then you just pray for those people. And you say, Lord, you gave me grace. That's unmerited favor. So I'm going to give unmerited favor to her. And I think sometimes we're gracious with somebody and we forget that that's what it is. It's unmerited favor. It's almost like, well, well, uh, I'll forgive her um, and I'm going to be gracious, but she better get better. Uh, no, that's uh, unmerited favor. Grace she doesn't deserve. And God wants you to be an instrument through whom that grace can flow. Now, let me say something to you that's important to understand. It doesn't mean that we let people do anything they want. It doesn't mean that if we have a legitimate grievance against somebody or they're holding something against us, that we don't deal with it. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, make peace with all people. But Sarah, the reality is that there's some people that you just can't make peace with, and that's got to be okay with you. So you balance grace by giving grace always, expecting not to receive any, and then you keep praying from a heart that's right before God. Again, it doesn't mean you let people walk all over you. It doesn't mean that um, you're, you're not dealing with the problem. If there's a real problem, God's grace demands that we do our best to solve it, make peace. We don't just overlook it, but you do it this way. Look, this is the way you're behaving. I'm extending forgiveness, but if you're going to continue to behave this way, then we're just not going to be able to talk to one another. That's not being, or not having a lack of grace. That's just understanding that grace makes us change. Titus, Paul writes in chapter 2, the 11th verse, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, the grace, teaches us to say no to worldliness or ungodliness and to live upright, self-controlled lives in this present age. So what you do, Sarah, is simply say, Lord, that that's the grace for me. I'm going to say no, and if this relationship with this person is causing me to stumble, then I'm going to take Paul's advice when writing to the Hebrews. Uh, his advice is to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's Hebrews chapter 12. 
And there are times, Sarah, when you've simply got to remove somebody from relationship because of the way they're behaving. Don't let this person's continue uh, continuing to sin or continue to behave in an ungodly way. Don't let this person cause you to stumble. That's what Paul's saying. So I hope that answers your question. Sarah, thank you for the question very, very much. Let's go now to uh, line one with Caesar on line one from San Antonio. Thanks for calling, Caesar. You're on the air. Yes, hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I was calling because I wanted to I wanted to have you expound on a certain verse. Um, that's going to be Mark sixteen sixteen. And uh, the reason I'm curious about this verse is because Catholics will point to that verse as proof that baptism is necessary for salvation. And uh, as I glanced through the other Gospels, and Jesus doesn't mention it again. Uh, but the verse reads, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So I just wanted to get your take on Mark sixteen sixteen. Uh, thank you for your answer in advance, and God bless Calvary Chapel. Oh, God bless you, Caesar. Thank you very, very much. Hey, a couple of things. You know, people that, that say this proves that baptism is necessary to be saved, uh, they forget the last part of that verse. Uh, let, let me read the verse. If they're doctrinally correct, it would say whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. But it doesn't say that. It makes it very clear that that baptism uh, is is secondary. Believing comes first. Um, but if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. It doesn't say that if you're not baptized, you'll be condemned. And it's so easy and it's so obvious. They only refuse to see that, Caesar, because they are already sort of uh, holding on to that thing that they've been taught. Um, um, that's simply not what it says. I'll give you another example. The Apostle Paul talked about people he's baptized. He says, I'm baptizing. Oh, and then he remembers, I baptized this guy and this guy. Um, if baptism was necessary... For salvation, the Apostle Paul would have been baptizing everybody. But he, that's not what he was sent to do. He was sent to preach the message. And when the, the, the power of God came upon people and they demonstrated gifts of the Spirit, it proved that they were already saved. They don't get unsaved by not being baptized. Now, another thing that people who believe this will do is... They will, they will think, well, you Christians, you just don't take baptism seriously. We take it very seriously. Every single person who has been born again should be baptized. The only thing that we don't do is demand that baptism is a work that salvation requires. It's not true. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It, the faith, is the gift of God. That's the definitive statement in Ephesians chapter 2 for what we must do to be saved. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth, then you will be saved, Paul writes to the church at Rome. He doesn't say you have to be baptized. And this is just a verse that they take out of context and they do that to support um, their specific and incorrect doctrine about baptismal regeneration. I think it's also significant in the verse uh, ahead of that, verse 15, Caesar, Jesus says to the, the, his disciples, go in all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And then he says, here's the result. And remember, baptism is a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ in a Jewish context. Uh, they all would have understood that. That's a public statement of repentance. That's a public statement of I'm washing away the old life. You know, the, the, the baptism is very symbolic. When we dunk people, when we take them completely under the water, and immersion is, is the way we ought to baptize. It's not another rule God has. It's just simply the biblical way of doing it. Um, um, we're, we're, we're actually going to a funeral, our own funeral, and we're being buried. The old you is being buried, and then we bring them up out of the water and that's symbolic of coming up in the newness of the resurrected life in Jesus Christ. So, uh, again, in verse 16, uh, I'd be really concerned about what I believe if 
Mark would have written, whoever believes, and he's, he's just quoting Jesus. If Jesus would have said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe and who does not get baptized will be condemned. And of course, he says just the opposite. So that's the answer, uh, Caesar, for that question. Thank you very, very much. How much time have I got? Two minutes. Let me see if I got a quick question. I got one minute, so it has to be even quicker. Oh, here's one I can do very quickly. It's from Ralph. There are times when I feel like God is leading me to a service where is there only worship rather than preaching. Am I off base here? Ralph, you could not be farther off base. The pitcher is going to pick you off. That's how far off base you are. Worship costs something. I know we all like goosebumps and we like to get emotional, but that's simply one way of manifesting worship. But every church service, every church service ought to focus on and major in the, the, the Word of God. Without the Word, we have no ability to worship because we don't know who we're worshiping. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our program. We'd love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our friday show only 30 minutes left in a week boy i gotta tell you guys don't get to be my age because when you are time flies 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Before I get back to some questions, um, I'm delighted, surprised, maybe call me shocked, but uh, in today's New York Times, there is an opinion piece uh, in the editorial section written by Pamela Paul. Here's the headline. As kids, they thought they were trans. They no longer do. And then it's a very thoughtful um, um, decent representation of um, young children who are convinced by social media or even in some cases by their schools that they were in the wrong body. You know, a 13-year-old girl um, is uncomfortable in her skin. But what 13-year-old girl isn't? Uh, and, and they're convinced that they're in the wrong body. And then they start hormone therapy and then they some of them go on and get surgery. Uh, the problem is then they grow up and they find out that that really wasn't the case at all. And you can't undo the things that you do, especially the permanent things, but even the hormones that people are taking. It changes people forever. And we are allowing our children to make decisions that they are not equipped to make. And I wonder where are the parents in this? No 13-year-old is capable of making a decision certainly a decision of that magnitude. And yet we want to be kind and we want to be loving. And I'll talk about that in connection with another question in just a few minutes. But uh, we we want to be cool. God says, your job is to be a parent. I cannot imagine what it's going to be like for any parent to stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment and give an answer for why they allowed their son or their daughter to, to mutilate their bodies, to, to give hormone uh, that, that are not intended for that, for that gender. How are we going to describe that? How are we going to explain that to the Lord? So today's New York Times shocked me, but I'm really grateful about it. Okay, let me get to this question. Um... There it is. I can't find. I can't see. So this stuff is hard for me. Uh, this is from Sandy from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, I've heard you speak of this before, but would you please address it again? My relatives brought up that some Bibles don't have Matthew seventeen, verse twenty-one. It skips from twenty to twenty-two. What is the reason for this? I have a nineteen eighty-four NIV. 
and it is missing from my Bible as well. Also, are there other chapters missing that we're not aware of? Uh, your teaching ministry is a blessing to us all. Sincerely, Sandy from Seguin. Sandy from Seguin, thank you. Let me read Matthew seventeen twenty one. It says, however, this kind, and we're talking about a demon possession, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Sandy, what you're going to find is you're going to find that three versions, the authorized version, the ASV, the King James Version, and the New King James Version will have Matthew chapter 17, verse 21 in it. The newer versions, uh, the more modern versions, not saying that's bad or good, but the 1984 NIV is one of them, and you know I teach out of the 1984 NIV. I think it is by far the best uh, translation of the New Testament. They don't have that verse. Now, they're not trying to hide anything, because in every Bible, you'll go down to the bottom of the page, and it will say some manuscripts have or add, and then they'll have the whole verse explained out, or the whole verse uh, written out. If they were trying to hide it, or if there was some nefarious plot afoot, then they wouldn't put it down at the bottom of the page. Now, here's the difference. The Authorized Version, the King James Version, and the New King James Version, they're translating uh, the manuscripts that are called Texas Receptus. Uh, another way to, to describe them is the majority texts. So they found these manuscripts, and in these manuscripts, they have those verses. So they just translate the manuscripts faithfully. In the newer versions, and they're translating the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are in fact older than the Texas Receptus, they don't have those verses, so they leave it out. Now, they don't change all of the, the verse numbers. Um, they, they simply skip from one to another, and then again they have the explanation at the bottom, some manuscripts add. Um, the Alexandrian manuscripts are older. There is a school of thought. By the way, I do not ascribe to this school of thought, but there is a school of thought that because they're older, they're more authoritative. Uh, I don't ascribe to that at all. Um, but they will say, see, better manuscripts. Um, uh, and, and so, again, they just leave it out, go to the next verse. Now, you said chapters. I, I think you mean verses. There are um, several. I'm thinking there's eight or nine of them in the New Testament, but that's just a guess off the top of my head, where they appear in one set of manuscripts but not the other. So whether it's in there or not depends on on the manuscript that's being translated. Again, there's nothing nefarious. It doesn't cast any doubt or aspersions on the integrity of the manuscript or the integrity of our Bible at all. It's just saying that we've got all these old manuscripts. The majority manuscripts have this thing. The um, Alexandrian manuscripts don't. And so the translators are simply being faithful to the manuscript they have. It doesn't change uh, at all. Um, Matthew 17, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Um, um, that doesn't change the text. That's just Jesus' explanation. Um, was it added by the translators of the manuscripts to make more sense of the text? We don't know. But it does no harm to the text. It does no harm to the context. And it doesn't change the meaning at all. So that's what it is. And that's going to be constant. I again want to emphasize that in the New Testament, I am firmly convinced after 33 years of study that the 1984 NIV is the best and most reliable New Testament transcript or, or uh, translation. And that's why I use it. But I also love the King James. That's the Bible that I grew up on as a brand new Christian. I love it. Uh, as many of you know, I'm visually impaired, and there's a lot of times when I can't read the verses um, on my notes. And so when I encounter that, I go back. I just quote New King James, or I'm sorry, the King James Version, because I've memorized a lot of that. And um, I always tell people, you can always tell when I can't see, because if King James is coming out, um, I just go back to, to what I've memorized. So um, no problems here. Sandy, uh, it doesn't mean that one Bible is better than another. It simply explains why some verses are included and some others are not. Thank you, Sandy. Appreciate your blessings very, very much. 
Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. Does anyone know or ever heard the name of God? Where do we get the names we ascribe to Abba from? Moses heard the name of God. Who shall I say sent me? And our translations say, you tell him, I am sent you. Um, the I am is a tetragram, the, the, the name of God. And honestly, nobody knows what that name is. We get Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, uh, but but remember the the rabbis those who transcribed uh, the the uh, the 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 manuscripts the the um, texts um, they felt that the name of God was so holy that they couldn't write it all and even after writing Yahweh or Jehovah whatever it is probably more Yahweh than anything else they left out the consonants that would make sense of it because they just felt that they were um, not worthy of, of proclaiming the word of God. Even after after doing that, um, tradition holds that those rabbis or those scribes would go and have a ceremonial cleansing before they would start writing anything else. So um, nobody's ever heard the name of God. Now, let me speak to you out of the other side of my mouth, and I don't mean by that that there's anything uh, inconsistent with this. We know the name of God. We know the name of God. It's Jesus. And you shall call him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. You know, a lot of Christians, we try to get very Jewish. We think it's more spiritual to say Jehovah or Yahweh. Let me remind you that Jehovah's Witnesses use Jehovah exclusively. There's certainly nothing spiritual about that use. Yahweh is another... um, It just drives me crazy when I hear Christians use the term Yahweh. It's Jesus. Jesus has made the Father known to us. Jesus has revealed the character, the nature, and the person of the Father. So, um, yeah, Moses heard the name from the mouth of the burning bush. Uh, the rest of us have had to kind of guess over the, the 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 millennia because we haven't heard it firsthand. But we know his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of Nazareth. When you say, where do we get the names we ascribe to Abba from? Let me talk about the name Abba for a minute. We call God the Father Abba, or Jews do. Uh, but that's just the Hebrew word uh, or, or even the Aramaic word for father in that part of the world. So um, the, the names that we get um, or, or the names that we ascribe to the father, um, uh, you know, we don't know. We've got to be honest and say, I don't know. And, and if you listen real carefully, you hear the father screaming out over the edge of time and space, it's Jesus it's Jesus. That's why I sent him. Hebrews one one. In the time in in past times, God spoke to our forefathers in, at many times and in various ways through the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us in Son. So, anonymous. Hope that answers your question. And you know, let's not try to get super spiritual when it comes to the name of God. Uh, let's simply. Rejoice in the fact that God has been made known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. 340-9585, here's a question from Brian. Brian says, Pastor, are you familiar with the controversy over Alistair Begg? It is troubling to me. Uh, Yeah, I am. For those of you who are not aware, Alistair Begg on a podcast, or uh, I'm not quite sure because I didn't dig in really deep, um, Alistair Begg in a podcast or in a conversation counseling or something, um, a grandmother asked him, um, her unbelieving grandson is is getting married to a trans person. I don't know what that means, and they didn't explain it. Um, and she wanted to know, should she go to the wedding? And Alistair Begg said that she should because that would be extending an olive branch or a bridge to her grandson and letting him know that, that she loves him and that when trouble comes, she they can always come running back. Uh, and, of course, uh, the Internet has exploded over this. Now, let me say something about Alistair Begg that I want everybody to hear. Alistair Begg has been for 40 years. Um, since 1975. 
He's been a faithful preacher of God's Word. Now, he's a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist. I disagree hardly with him. But Alistair Begg has been exemplary in terms of his character, um, his doctrine. Uh, he, there's nothing heretical. Now, I think he's wrong about Calvinism, but there's nothing heretical. Uh, there have been no scandals uh, reported. He hasn't abused anybody. He has been a pillar uh, uh, rightly representing God and rightly representing other um, pastors of good standing for years and years and years. And it seems like everybody's ready to throw him overboard now because of this one thing that he made. Now, I'm going to tell you, he is wrong in this area. And I'll explain why in a moment. But this isn't something that you just cancel him because he made this statement and he really believes. By the way, he addressed it in the church service either this past Sunday or the Sunday before. I, I'm not sure uh, of the chronology there. And he said uh, he won't repent because he doesn't need to. He said this is nuance and, and we need to build bridges. And he actually said that uh, American uh, Christians are black and white. He says, I come from um, from from the U.K., and and we're more nuanced. And I'm simply saying, Jesus hung out with sinners. We can do that, and that will build a bridge. And then he said, uh, with his counsel, she went, and the wedding gift that she gave him was a Bible. Now, here's the problem with all of that. A wedding is a celebration. And the people that go to celebrate that wedding are affirming the behavior now, we don't have to trash it. We certainly shouldn't make a scene. But as Christians, we cannot affirm sinful behavior. And the prevailing thought is, well, it's just not loving. And, 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 and people will say, and I've had this happen over and over about gay weddings. Well, well, they know where I stand. The problem is the minute you go celebrate that wedding, where you stand is sinking ground. Where you stand is compromise. Because this is how they're going to process it. I won my grandma over in this case. We simply cannot affirm behavior that is going to result in sending somebody to hell for eternity. If we say it's okay, I can imagine now this, this grandson saying, well, my grandma's a Christian. She came to celebrate the wedding. That's the process. That's what the enemy is going to do with that information. And we've got to be tougher. We've got to be more direct in understanding love. Love is not accepting nor affirming sinful behavior. Love is telling the truth in love. The minute we compromise, and, and nuance is compromise, the minute we compromise, then we've lost our standing in Christ in the eyes of the people that we've affirmed the sinful behavior. I just, I'll never understand why that's a difficult concept. You know, when, I don't care what people think about our heart. He said, all you'll be doing is affirming the character of some fundamentalist Christian, and, and that's who they think we are. It doesn't matter what, what they think or who they think we are. What matters is who we are, and Jesus knows your heart. Now, let me make this really personal, because, Brian, I had I have two sons, uh, they're both married. One of them is saved. The other is not. They're wonderful men. And when uh, I was a brand new Christian, but not brand, brand new, but, but in the first couple of years, uh, they both had girlfriends and uh, they were going to move in together with their girlfriends. And um, they just came back and told us. And I said, uh, you know, if and, and Paula was part of this as well. Um, we can never accept that. Now, we love you. You're my son. You're, you're welcome here anytime. But you cannot bring this girl, this, this woman, to our house expecting us to treat you like you're married. We're not going to suggest it's okay. Now, if you guys come, we're going to tell you this is wrong. You need to repent. You need Jesus. So I was in exactly the same situation. I'm sure my boys thought that was unloving. But you see, God knew I knew Paula was right there with me. And we've got to take a stand for Christ. The, the, the reality is we trade Jesus for our children because this hits close to home. And we want our kids to like us. We want them to think of Christians as being loving. But we have to redefine loving. 
Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. To the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus, after the fact, found him, searched for him, and said, stop sinning, or something worse will happen to you. That's what we've got to do. That's love. I don't know anybody who would be bold enough to say Jesus wasn't loving. So I want to make it clear. We can't, just because it affects us, compromise our beliefs. What I would say to this grandson is, I love you, you know I love you, but you're asking me to love you more than I love Jesus, and I don't. I won't. I love you, I'll be praying for you, I want you to know I'm always here for you. But I cannot pretend like this marriage is okay, and I will never do anything to affirm this just to make you feel better about who I am. If you don't know who I am by now, then nothing is going to change that. So so that's the way we got to deal with it. Now, let me just say this about Alistair Begg again because I want this to be clear. He is a faithful servant of God who's just wrong this one time. He is a faithful servant of God. His ministry has produced abundant fruit for a very, very long time. And we Christians who have a habit of biting and devouring one another need to back off. You're going to answer to God for slandering one of his servants if you're one of those, oh, Alistair Begg, you know, radio stations where his radio program has been on the air for years and years, decades. Uh, Some of them are removing him from the radio. That's their right to do so. But we need to be careful about how we talk about God's servants. I, 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 I know Alistair Begg. I, I've met him, spoke with him for just a moment. It's not like we're buddies or anything. But uh, if he were to call me today, now he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't know our phone number, 340-9585. But if he called me and said, what do you think I ought to do? I would say you ought to apologize for the counsel you gave because it's wrong. If he chose not to, guess what? He's still a faithful servant of God who happens to be wrong. So, Brian, I hope that answers your question. That is a um, an upfront and center uh, issue going on right now, and Alistair Begg doesn't deserve that, um, even though he was wrong. You know, I think we can be wrong uh, and still be okay with the Lord. Okay, we don't think we have time for more calls. Four minutes. Um Here's one I'll take. This will probably be the last one of the day. It's anonymous. Recently in my church, there was a man who began shouting at the pastor. He was obviously troubled, but they had security remove him. Shouldn't they have been more understanding? Anonymous, this is a tough one. Nobody knows what to do. Now, uh, I've had I've had people shouting directly at me, but I've had people shouting, uh, trying to correct doctrine. I've had people shouting, um, um, I'm a prophet, I'm anointed of God, sent to correct you, those kind of things. And in every case, those people are also very troubled. Now, the problem is the service stops at that point, and all of the people that are being ministered to by the teaching of the Word, immediately their attention is taken away from the Bible and what the Spirit is saying. For some, it's frightening, a little bit scary because people are acting irrationally. So what should we do? Well, we protect and value the Word of God. People need to hear the Word. That's what they come here for. And so we're going to take the distraction outside the building. Now, we're not going to rough them up. Uh, We have security. They're going to, as gently as they possibly can, they're going to go up and they're going to take the man outside. And then they're going to try to minister to him or her. Um, Sometimes they'll listen and sometimes they won't. But they have no right to disrupt the church service. They have no dis, no right to disrupt what the Lord is doing uh, in in the uh, in the hearts of the people that are there. Uh, and in my case, particularly, that has almost always happened at the end or toward the end of a message when we're getting ready to give an invitation. And certainly, we don't want to interrupt that. So, um, security should have removed him. That's what they did. I'm sure. Uh, Wherever that was, they did it as lovingly and as gently as they could. 
Um, and uh, the pastor, I hope, did what I do. You just go back to where you were when the interruption happened and finish the message that you're going to give. So it is not unloving to take somebody who is a distraction out. It would be unloving if you let somebody distract the people that God has brought to you on this particular day to share. Interesting idea about what's loving and what isn't. I think that ties in with the Alistair Begg question. You know, the same thing is true, and I don't have time for another question, so I'll just finish with this. It's also true during worship. You know, in worship, uh, we've had people come in and they bring tambourines and start banging on them, or they'll, they'll run around the church, things like that. We stop that, too, because we want the focus to be on Jesus, not on people. And, you know, the minute somebody is drawing attention to themselves, that ceases to be of the Spirit of God. And we need to understand that. And we need to be supportive of that. People say, what's wrong, Pastor, with tambourines being in church? Well, let me tell you, personally, I hate tambourines. That's just a personal thing. And they say, tambourines are in the Bible. I say, so's the devil. I don't want him in church either. So it's just a personal preference. But remember, we bring honor to the Lord and him alone. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Been a good week. Three, I don't need to give you the phone number now. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back on Monday, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.